OWC Radio number 35, an interview with Alexander Sharkey, Bad Analogies, and your feedback. Tim Robertson, and this is OWC Radio number 35. It's, uh, I have to be honest, it's really hot here in the studio today. And it's one of those hots that you, you kind of get that sweat trickle going down your back, and it's just kind of uncomfortable. And I don't know if it's really that hot or it's just the fact that I haven't slept really good in two days. Yeah, I've got really crappy neighbors. And by crappy, I mean, um, well, they're horrible. They uh, like to play m- loud music till one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you know. Look, I'm, I'm 40 years old, and I understand when you're 20 and you want to have a lot of fun. But, you know, these people have children, younger children than mine. And they're partying till 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm personally sick of calling the cops on them, so... That's why I didn't get a lot of sleep. Not looking for, you know, sympathy, just kind of explaining. We've got some feedback I want to get into. I would really like to hear your feedback. You can send it to podcast at maxsales.com, or you can leave a voice message at 1-801-938-5559. You can find all that information and more at owcradio.com. Appreciate it if you go up to the site, take a look, send us some feedback, and uh, help us make the show better. The first one I want to read, though, is from Phil. He says, hi, Tim. I wanted to comment on the Hulu topic you brought up. By the way, I'm not going to do that computer reading the email anymore. I listened to it back, and I didn't dig it as much as I thought I would. Back to Phil. I am not uh, not for or against Hulu because it is a non-issue for me. Hulu is a television service that charges $9.95 a month. The complaints people are making about commercials makes no sense. When you pay for your cable bill and watch TV, there are commercials there all the time. So why do people think it should be any different on the Internet? Matter of fact, they're a lot shorter than on regular TV. Just a thought. Thanks for your, your efforts for making the OWC podcast, Phil. Thanks, Phil. You know, I kind of agree with you. Um, $9.95 a month. You get a huge catalog of television to watch on your iPad and soon on your iPhone, on your computer. Well, on your computer, technically, it's free because if you go to their website, it doesn't cost anything. But you do get commercials. But you get a lot less commercials than you do on regular TV. Uh, Prime example, I was watching – oh, what was the name of the show? I can't even think of it now. A television show. It's an hour long. But when you take all the commercials out, the show is like 44 minutes long or less. So you're getting a lot of commercials. And once the commercials start, you know you're going to get, you know, what, two to five minutes worth before they get back to the show. You only get at the very most usually uh, a 30-second commercial, just one, when you're watching a program on Hulu. They'll show you one commercial, and it's a lot less commercials spaced out. So I agree with you, Phil. I don't think that it's that big of a deal. Um, By the same token, though, I will say an app like the 
CNN iPhone app that has commercials built in. Well, that's an app that cost me however much I paid for it. I don't even remember now. Five bucks maybe? Three bucks? I don't expect to see ads there because I paid for a dedicated app to read or view their content. Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a slippery slope. I think it's just kind of taken for granted now with those who purchase apps for their iPhone and iPad and iPod Touch, and I'm sure Android, that if you pay for the content, you're not bothered with all the ads. If you get it for free, then you have to expect that you're going to see some ads. So I don't know. It's a fine line. Some apps pull it off real well. Others don't. And the developers deserve to make money regardless of which route they go, whether they give a free app or a paid app. They deserve to get paid. Those are apps that wouldn't, exi- wouldn't exist without those developers. And let's be honest, nobody really wants to work for free. I know you don't. When you go to work, Phil, you, you get paid, right? I do. You do. The developers should. So I'm with you, though, Phil. I think nine ninety five a month, if you're a huge TV watcher, and you want it on the go, I don't think that's a bad price. Next one is from uh, Marion. Hey, Tim, uh, I hear that you don't want a case for your iPhone 4. Try this. And he sends me a link. It's uh, A-T, or I'm sorry, A-N-T-E-N-N-A-I-D. I'm going to put a link on OWC Radio to this. And <laughs> i got to say, this is kind of funny. It's a sticker. And it's called Antenna Aid. Well, Antennaid. A N T E N N dash A I D. Like antenna, but Antennaid. It's a band aid. And it's a band aid you put over on your iPhone 4, that little black line that's causing all the problems with the antenna. You put it over that and it cures it. And it comes in, oh, what is it? Six different colors uh, a grayish black. I'm assuming that's. You know, I can't really tell. Uh, a silver, clear-looking one. Again, it could be clear or it might be silver. You can't really tell on the Internet sometimes. Green, blue, a Band-Aid kind of beige-ish, beige color, and a purple one. And they're perfectly sized for the, the edge of the iPhone, so they're really thin. Six-pack is only $4.99 plus shipping, so they're dirt cheap. Uh, copyright Hi-Fi 3D Incorporated. And these are the technical specifications of the antennae. Technical specifications. Um, it's a sticker. <laughs> That's brilliant. I'm sorry. That's uh, Marion. Thank you very much for sending that in. It, it made my day. It really did. I, I I thought, oh great, somebody's. It's it's a non-case case or some weird thing like that. And I looked at that, and I it really did crack me up. So that was great. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's a sticker. Uh, this one is from Jeff. He says, hey, Tim, I just heard the latest OWC radio. Good stuff. As a father of five girls, I can totally relate to your comments about the scum you run into online. I have a tip for you regarding the proximity sensor on the iPhone. I had the same issue on my first generation iPhone, and here's what I did. You could turn the screen off after you make a call or receive a call by pushing the button on top of the phone. In time, this will become habit, and you will do it without thinking. 
I use the earbuds and uh, with my phone most of the time, so this is not much of an issue for me. What I would like to know is where did all the whiners come from? Apple makes the best tech stuff out there. Keep up the good work, Jeff. Jeff, I agree there's a lot of whiners out there, but you know that's always been the case with Apple. I think that those of us who buy Apple products expect um, more out of our products than, say, someone who buys just a cheap Dell laptop or um, desktop computer. I think we expect – it's unrealistic to, to expect that there's going to be no flaws, but we don't expect especially on the fourth version of something, that you're going to come into problems like the proximity issue, the proximity sensor issue. They've been making this phone for four years. It's, it's really is unacceptable that this would be an issue. That being said, I'm still going to keep my iPhone. I know that Apple has promised a software fix, but it's, I'm still not happy. And I agree, there is a lot of whiners, and it's always been the case with Apple products. Of course, I'm also into video games, and you want to hear about whining. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, a game just came out called Crackdown 2, and I love the first Crackdown. And this version of the game, it's four years after the uh, original game came out, is pretty much more of the same. The graphics are about the same. The gameplay is about the same. Less of a story than the first one. And uh, the level of whining from the fanboys about Crackdown 2 is just crazy. And I see it all the time in the Mac world as well, whereas they'll take and the, the tiniest little thing and blow it so out of proportion. I also think because of the success Apple has had over the last few years that the media out there really, when they see a company doing as well as Apple and they have this kind of a little faux pas going on with the antenna gate thing, um, I think they'll make a big deal out of it simply because it's Apple. They know if they put a website link out there about Apple and it looks like it's negative, people are going to click it. You're going to get those who can't stand Apple to begin with. They're going to clink it, clink it, click it to justify their hatred of Apple and all things Mac and iPhone and iPad. And you're going to get those who are probably more like us who like to defend Apple and their products because we know how superior they are to, compared to the rest of the industry are going to click it because we know that we're going to have to deal with this as fanboys and we're going to have to defend Apple and the products and say, hey, this is BS. And I, that's just the way things are. Uh, I don't particularly like it. I don't think you do either, Jeff, but it is what it is. So those are the feedbacks I wanted to go into. Uh, one little new thing here I wanted to talk about before we get to our interview and I do a little intro on him. Uh, but, and by the way, on this interview, I don't do a this and that. Uh, I kind of say that for the hardcore tech people that I have on the show. And, um, and though I did forget to do it with Bill Palmer a few weeks ago as well. So I need to get back to the this or that. But here's something that you guys can participate in. In fact, I need your participation for this to work. And I call it bad analogy. And this came about today because I was browsing my Twitter feed and, you know, there's a lot of people that would just post stupid stuff up on Twitter. Um, I don't mind you posting, just had breakfast, uh, I've got heartburn now, might call in sick. That's fine. I don't mind that. But these people who post stuff on Twitter that they simply, like, copy out of, I don't know, some website or book, and they, th and they think it makes them look clever. And it's very transparent. I don't enjoy reading these types of posts. And I tend to, at least nowadays, start to 
stop following them. If all they're doing is little sayings and little quotes from Martin Luther King or John Kennedy or Barack Obama or George Bush, and if that's all their tweets are, I just stop following you because you're not contributing to the conversation. But there's a lot of people that will like to post analogies. And I read this one, and I actually replied to it, and I thought this would make kind of a fun podcast thing that I do on OWC Radio. And it's called Bad Analogy. So send me your analogies, whether you think they're good or bad, and uh, I'll read some on the show and tell you why it's a bad analogy. (laughs) So here's the first one of Bad Analogy. You cannot feed chocolate cake to a non-hungry person anymore that you can give membership, or I'm sorry, mentorship to a non-hungry student. You cannot feed chocolate cake to a non-hungry person any more than you can give mentorship to a non-hungry student. Uh, that is so stupid. Come on. I'm not hungry right now. I had breakfast this a little while ago. I'm not hungry. You gave me some chocolate cake right now. I'd eat it. I'm sorry. I, I eat chocolate cake. I don't need to be hungry to eat chocolate cake. Stupid analogy. Stupid. Oh, and a non-hungry student. Come on. Oh. So send me your bad analogies. Podcast at maxsales.com, and I'll read them here on the show and uh, make fun of that analogy. All right, we're coming up on uh, our interview. Alexander Sharkey is a filmmaker. He just graduated from school, so obviously he's not making money at filmmaking yet, but like a lot of struggling filmmakers when they first get started, you have to start somewhere. And I think now's the great time to interview these filmmakers or soon-to-be filmmakers. And it works with musicians, too, before they have their big album. That's when you want the interview. You don't want it after they made $100 million because, let's be honest, they're going to be very more, a lot more cautious on what they say. And they've had you know, public relation handlers to tell them how to deal with certain questions. And when you get to a, level, a certain level of success, it's just not a very good interview anymore. That's why I've always told people that's asked me, would you interview Steve Jobs? And I would say, maybe, but I probably wouldn't enjoy it very much because I know I'm not going to get a real answer out of Steve Jobs. And by real, I mean every answer he gives is geared towards one thing, and that's making Apple and himself to, you know, to present that in the best picture possible. And that's not always lending itself well to an honest answer. So I don't think I would really want to because it would just be more PR answers from him. I could be wrong, but I kind of think that's what it would be. And I don't want to do an interview with anybody who I think it's just all about PR. So the, the opportunity to interview Alexander came up thanks to Grant Dahlke at OWC, uh, Otherworld Computing, uh, they worked together. The Grant sent some equipment to help with the filmmaking process, and you'll hear us talk about that in the interview. And I thought this would be a fun interview to do. I don't know Alexander Sharkey at all. This is the first time I've talked to him. Actually, technically, I talked to him on Tuesday when we were originally going to do the interview, but we're having some audio issues, so uh, we put it off till today, today being Thursday. And uh, it was really cool listening to his thoughts on the filmmaking process and the industry as a whole. Uh, A lot of you probably aren't filmmakers. In fact, most of you probably aren't. But I think we all have kind of that interest in the filmmaking process. And they're using a lot of the same software and hardware that we're using in our daily lives. 
digital cameras, editing, that sort of thing, um, digital distribution. There's a lot that goes in with filmmaking nowadays. And you don't have to be a rich guy or have a, the backing of a huge studio to make good film. And so it's really, to me, interesting to talk to people that are in the trenches doing the, the dirty work, if you will. They're out there. They're making film. They're making art. And I always find that interesting. So here's my interview with sorry about that, Alexander Sharkey. Must be a thing today. I'm just not. Uh, I'm not on my game right now. I think it's this lack of sleep and and that big trickle of sweat that just went down my back. Ew. So I'm going to uh, jump to the interview now and go find some air conditioning. Take care. I'll see you guys next week again. Feedback. I want your bad analogies. Podcast at maxsales.com. And uh, here you go. And we're back. Alexander Sharkey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I appreciate you coming on OWC Radio this week. Uh, I, the reason I found you is because Grant Dalkey sent me your contact information because OWC and you and a project you were on had some kind of a relationship. And we'll get to that in a second. But let's uh, find out a little bit about you. What do you do? Um, I would say I'm, ind- I'm an independent filmmaker or photographer. Uh I, I like to make films, but I more so like to tell stories. Um, and I guess art is a way in which you can do that, and film particularly is one way in which I, I'm i good at doing it, whether if it's producing it or whether I'm behind the camera. Um, it's something I just enjoy to do. I don't see it as a job. I see it as a passion. As a, yes. Yeah. How'd you get involved in filming to begin with? I mean, there's got to be something in your background that kind of led you to this genre. Um, I... Like I said, I'd say I'm an artist at heart. I, I took piano lessons for 12 years. Um, I went. My parents put me into art camps. I never really played sports, but I always was kind of using the left side of my brain. So, gotcha. uh, film. It's like, I guess the the first film I ever made was I was in eighth grade, and um, it was with uh, one of those little video capture cards and an old VHS oh. camcorder, <laughs> and, uh, and and it was a it was a religion project that all we had to do was make a poster for, but I wanted to I guess go the extra mile and made a, a video called Lust vs. Chastity. We had to make a we had to do a poster on the seven deadly sins. So I my our our group was Lust vs. Chastity. I was like, Well, why don't we make a video? And I guess that was the first film I ever made and since then I've kind of um you know, I've branched out from, you know, what what the projects I've done. Are you interested in commercial type of video? I mean, if someone came to you and said, we want a commercial, a literally a commercial for Ford, or are you more into, I want to make films, I want to make feature narrative. films? or Narrative, for sure. Yeah. Narrative or documentary. Um, I, and I would not say necessarily commercial. Um, it, I, I think I was saying earlier, I'm trying to be as independent as possible. Um, and, and I guess in this industry, I was in Los Angeles last or a year ago interning, and I don't necessarily know if I really enjoyed it that much, just because when I was there, it made it feel more like a job. And um, and for me, I, I see it more as a passion, and when it becomes more of a job, and okay, I have to go work and do this, it just took the fun out of it. Um, so so while it's you know there's a, there's a there's a sense of professionalism with it, I feel there's also a sense of you know. Um, 
artistic vision and creativity as well. So somehow if you could do everything that you want to do and be successful at it and make a lot of money, but yet retain that passion and not have it become your job, that would really be your goal. That's my goal, definitely. Yep. Do you think the internet will help you accomplish that? I mean, I with free distribution and a built-in audience? I think it definitely will help. Um, a, one, financially, and two, uh to get to get to those those groups of people, you know, your target audience, you know, financially in the sense that like with this film we just made, I'm really trying to push the fact that I don't want to necessarily make a bunch of DVDs and ship them all out to my cast and crew when in essence they're most likely going to be watching on their laptop computer. They could download a, you know, a high quality QuickTime file and watch it there or we could give them a DVD image and if they want to burn it, by all means go ahead and make a DVD. I mean, most people today have a DVD burner and it, you know, a uh, blank DVD media so I feel you know in essence to save time and money there's a lot of ways that the internet you know allows you to do that and very quickly too you know sending a file over the internet would be a lot faster than trying to ship a DVD from you know the east coast to the west coast or something like that you ever think of releasing um I, I well let me ask first do you charge people to watch your films no no I haven't at least yet have you thought about releasing um Technically, it would be a podcast, but somebody could subscribe to your channel and and once a year or twice a year, however often you release a project, they would get it for free via iTunes. Hmm. No, I've never thought of that. Yeah, something to think about. That way they can sync it to their iPads and iPhones and all their little devices and watch it wherever they're at. Sure. And yeah. it's free distribution, you know. It, it doesn't yeah. cost you a dime. So when I was your age, it was... Uh, quite a proposition to make a movie i mean sure the, the cameras were extremely expensive and low quality to be honest <laughs> uh sure. to edit it i mean you need an editing bay uh mm-hmm. an avid system was you know a three hundred fifty thousand dollar prospect and nobody's going to let a student come in and mess with that yeah. nowadays i have to imagine it's a lot easier the barrier to entry for you just is a lot better than it was for me i would i would definitely agree i feel that you know um, it's also becoming a much more popular major, I think, film. I talk to more and more people, and even at the jobs I work at, you know, which are not film-related. And I say, and they ask, oh, what are you doing? And like, oh, I'm in films. Like, oh, my nephew's in that. My grandson's in that. And I'm also often kind of surprised. Like, wow, I guess there's a lot of people either interested in it, interested in doing it or realize that it's this easy to do and they're capable of doing it. Um, because, but there's a big difference between being able to do it and being good at doing it. Exactly. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, I feel like if, if you know you you have a desire to do it, you'll eventually find your niche and you know where you belong in that. I mean, not everyone's meant to be a director, or not everyone's meant to be a cinematographer, but some people might just like you know I like really working with lights, or you know I like to be a grip, and I think that's what necessarily college could be for. You know, it is for you know to to kind of find that area whether that college is that successful at at actually um, conveying that to their students, you know, and having them find that out. You know, I think that's, that depends on the school um, and also the person themselves as far as how much time and energy and, and commitment they want to put into it. When you're actually on a project and you're filming, are you thinking of the technical aspects of the film, how I'm going to get this into a computer, what might, or are you thinking of the story itself and you're just trying to get as many takes on a particular shot as possible? I would say the latter. I mean, there's definitely technical things involved. Um, I would say when it comes to sit, when, me as a cinematographer, I'm always trying to find a really interesting way to film something. And, you know, I think, um, you know, that's also that's narrative, but it's also technical in a sense, too. So, um, but again, like, you know, you said, because technology and the, 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 the ease of recording something has become so much more simple, um, it's, 
it, it, it one causes you ha- to have to worry about it less. But I had a, I had a, a, photog- a photography professor who kind of says that you know the death of film is kind of um, is is can be a very bad um, hindrance to you know the photographer or the you know the filmmaker in the sense that you know when you had only twenty four um, exposures and you had to make sure everyone counted because that was a lot of money and there's a lot of time in the dark room. You know, you made sure before you hit that shutter that this was the photo you wanted and that everything was pre-visualized and, and you made sure that, you know, your exposure was correct and your framing. But now, you know, if, if you screw up, well, let's just do it again. Right. Uh, I think you need to find a balance between the two. You know, there needs to be enough pre, um, uh, pre-production and, and, you know, whether it's a communication between the director and the cinematographer, the actors, whatever it may be, as much preparation as possible because, you know in order to achieve that professional look you need to be prepared going into it you just can't say okay well here we are today and this is what we're going to do um does the technology give you the freedom though to experiment in the field if you will this is how we have this shot blocked out uh we've got that but you know what we've got some extra time here let's let's play with it a little bit let's try something different definitely definitely i mean i definitely feel when i'm behind the camera it's like you know you get the shots you need and if you have the time or you find something like oh this is really cool like you know because you're always it's 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 always about thinking on your feet. You know, it's problem solving. In my opinion, filmmaking. You know, it's whether it's before you're on set or while you're on set. You're always going to run into problems, and that's what your crew is there for. And it's what you're. You know, you have to kind of figure that out together in order to make it work. So, no, I, I definitely think you're right. Uh, Steven Spielberg's famous for editing on the camera. Uh, is that your technique as well, or or do you worry about more of the editing process in post? Um. I would say it's probably become more of a post thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one, one professor one t- told me when I was at Ithaca, she was like, you know, you, know, you can have a, a, your whole entire script on paper and it's going to, you know, look great and in, in theory probably be, be great. But once you film it, that's what you have. And, th- and, you know, you have to leave the script, script behind you now and pretty much take the media you have and make it work. You know, it might, be, it might end up becoming a totally different story. You know, it's in the hands of the editor. So, you know... I think, um, you know, it's for me. It's editing is as I've I've become to learn has become much more of okay. You know, we've got whatever we can get on set, but once we need to go to the editing process, kind of leave that behind and see. Okay, now how do we make this work effectively for the scene? You know, for the audience. Right. So Grant Dulkey sent me the link to uh, the Knights of Death Metal, mm-hmm. and I went and watched the trailer. And I have to say, to be honest, I, I'm not sure what the heck I saw. I felt like I was. Uh, 17 again back in 1987 <laughs> watching Headbangers Bar or Ball and a Guar video came on and I'm like what What? I don't understand what the heck that was but then I see pictures that you have online from the set and it doesn't look anything like that strange video so yeah. what did I see What? what is the Knights of Death Metal the Knights of Death Metal um, is a, well, I guess I just, just before I kind of explain I can explain the story and I'll kind of explain you know how, how we got to, to make the film sure. and explain a little bit better um, the, the Knights of Death Metal is a, is a film that uh, the fellow producer Brian Barnes wrote um, uh, la- a, a summer ago. Um, and pretty much he went to Los Angeles this past, this past spring when we made the film. Um, and it was the reason he was writing it was for the script competition. David Ames uh, is an alumni of Ithaca. And for the past two years, he's donated money and the college has matched it and has become this $10,000 um, script writing competition where you know you submit a script and then if you become a finalist you need to answer um, it, you have to kind of put it together a whole production package kind of like project Greenlight. exactly mm-hmm. and then you have, you have to pitch it in front of a committee oh fun so, so brian came up to me last summer 
and was like, well, I need someone to produce this while I'm gone because, you know, he, he, I need someone I can trust and who, know, who will get the job done. So he came to me, um, I guess, from prior work that I have done and, you know, he knew he could trust me, he could trust me and we have never worked together. Um, and my job was pretty much on this project, you know, solely producing it. I think creatively, I mean, I, I played um, as much of a role as I could, but, you know, it was really in that point left up into the directors and cinematographer. Uh, it was, you know, in their hands. So my, you know, my, my role was pretty much getting, making the $10,000 work and making the film actually uh, come to life. And the film itself, what it's about is um, these two brothers, Noah and Dylan. Uh, Noah is the youngest brother. And he's narcoleptic. He falls asleep a lot. And the older brother, Dylan, he's 14. He's prepubescent. Um, and he's kind of, you know, rebelling against his family and not, not hanging out with his brother anymore. And the two of them used to share a room. Well, the older brother's getting the death metal and he doesn't want to hang out with his dorky brother anymore in his fort. So he wants to move into the basement. So pretty much the film revolves around his older brother moving into the basement. And one weekend their parents go away. And Noah, the narcoleptic one, he has these dreams that keep coming to reality, and his biggest nightmare is that this mascot for this death metal band, the Night of Death Metal, uh, this mascot comes to life and pretty much tries to chop the two of them in half. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of a bond of brotherhood. The two of them have to come together and and uh, and you know save themselves, but kind of also I guess it's about the older brother kind of you know regaining that connection with his his younger brother. I think when we first, you know, Brian and I first had the script, we saw it much more as a scary film um, with kind of elements of, you know, children's fantasy and comedy. But uh, the director who kind of took, took on the role of um, the project, he, he took it much more in a, a comedic light. Um, he's a stand-up comedian himself, Joe Perra. Oh. Um, so and he's, he's trying to pursue his career in New York City right now, um, but, you know, doing stand-up. And uh, that... Uh, I think that definitely, you know, took a different spin on the film, and I think a good one, because um, I, I, I feel by the end, um, you know, people are, are entertained. I mean, the, the little boy is extremely cute, so I don't. I think anyone can sympathize for him, and uh, it because of the role, the the, the direction the director took, um, you know, it took a much more comedic light, which I, I think served the film um, pretty well. So, so you have ten thousand dollars to spend mm-hmm. on this film. What do you spend money on? I mean, if someone out there is listening, they say, hey, I've got this script. I'd really <laughs> like to film it. Uh, $10,000, that sounds like a lot of money, but... That's really not. It's, no. it's really not. What does that money go for? Um, well, I I was a huge proponent on this project of getting the red camera. That's what I wanted personally. is Because the film itself, like I said, we thought it was going to be scary and dark and you know mysterious. And, and the, the red camera is one of the, you know, the, the better digital... Um, cameras out there that captures can. at 2K, right? A 4K. 4K. I'm a, sorry. Yeah, I mean we, we don't even have a monitor that can display that yet. Exactly. But the cool thing about it is that you know with 4K, we shot in 4K, and then if you think we, but we our final project right now is only in 1080. We could in theory have our final distribution in 2K or 4K, but the advantage of shooting in 4K and then um, outputting in 1080 is that your frame is so much bigger in that 1080 placemat. So you can actually make in-camera movements just by two-dimensionally moving the frame around. Hmm. So it really allows a lot of room for post-production, um, you know, fixing things. So like say, okay, we need a tighter, you know, close-up here, but we never got a close-up of, you know, this person during that scene. Oh, well, let's take the 4K shot we have and just pretty much blow it up and throw it in there. And it's, you know, you don't lose any, um, you know, uh, optical, uh, you know, there's no, no artifacts or anything exactly. like that. Yeah. 
it's 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 very very clear and crisp. So that's kind of cool. Plus, and, you can use the. It's not like you the ten thousand dollars that you just spent and the money for the camera. It's only for this project. You're going to be able to use this camera on multiple projects going forward. Well, we didn't. We only rented the camera. Yeah, uh, I was going to say for ten thousand, how'd you buy it? <laughs> the, 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 we were we were you know we're, we were kind of pushing for the school to to buy one themselves. Yeah. But um, it, it, you know, this is this project itself was was one. It was a pretty big headache, you know, dealing with all because you know once you add money, a lot of red tape becomes involved, especially when it's a grant. Um, when there's a lot of you know uh, uh, predispositions and and you know kind of uh, rules we need to follow. Accountability uh, so, as well. Exactly. Yeah. So like uh, we had the school for whatever reason, Ithaca College doesn't want to never and and probably never will covers insurance for outside equipment rentals. So that alone was a thousand dollars that we had to pay out of our own pocket at first, and then had to argue with the school to reimburse us for. Um, but you know, the camera it costs four thousand dollars to rent, and really, what costs the money isn't the camera. You could buy that camera for fifteen grand. Yeah, it's the lenses. It's the hundred thousand dollar lenses, the Zeiss lenses we used. Yep. Um, and and that's what gives you the you know pristine image. I feel like a lot of people you know say, oh, you have to have the best camera, you know, the the best hardware. When really, it's just as simple as it was back in the day it's always the glass that you know makes the image um and you know the 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 camera behind it the brain i mean the red's really good at what it does but if, if you know if you don't know what you're doing with it you could it could still look like ultimately crap you know if if you're if you're lighting the scene properly you know and you have a good frame then it's going to look good um I, I shot a film for my thesis which was in the fall and my budget for that was six hundred dollars and that was that's currently right now is a 45 minute pilot i shot wow. that on I shot that on a Nikon D40X, um, and all our money pretty much was spent on production design and food. Um, you, you know, I was watching uh, House, the season finale of the show House this year, and at the end it says this entire episode was shot on, uh, what is it, the, the Mark V? The Mark V. The yeah. Mark, yep, and that, I thought, wow, and it looked fantastic. Honestly, that's my career. That's where I want to go with uh, yep. with digital SLR cameras, I, they're so awesome because they're so small and they're so capable of getting any kind of shot. Um, and me as a photographer, at first, it became so easy to find an interesting angle and then shoot it. Um, so, I, and, and it's, it's it, they're really great cameras. Um, and a really cool website is uh, borrowlenses.com. For instance, I, for, I, I was shooting on a, D, a D5000, which isn't a great camera at all compared to the Mark V. Um, but I needed a camera for 10 days because the one I was borrowing was gone, and I rented it and then a Zeiss lens for, I think it was 120 bucks with shipping and insurance all the way from California. Wow. And I was up for 10 days, so like it's extremely cheap. Yeah, that's, that's almost nothing. And, and exactly, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's really simple. Um, and then the cost of media is so cheap too. You know, the high-definition, high-speed um, high flashcards are, you know, 60 50 bucks for like a, a, a 8 16 gigabyte you know card and you know with film i remember my freshman year i had a film project or my sophomore year i had a film project and i spent two thousand dollars alone on, on on the film and the processing Absolutely. that was yeah. for the 17 minutes short so you know it's becoming a lot cheaper to to do these things and and i guess going back to your original question of like you know what do you spend ten thousand dollars on i mean besides the camera you know, I really think it's about, you know, what's inside the frame, you know, the production design and to make sure you have, like, we rented another HMI. We only had one HMI in our school and, you know, we needed a, we needed more light and we, we needed to rent that. And, like, those are things that, in my opinion, are worth it. Lighting, 
and production design. Because if you have good lighting and you have a good some some kind of good stage or some kind of good you know background to to film, then you know it it, it will give the illusion that what you're watching is is as professional as you would find it. There's only so much you can do in post. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm looking at the invitation that went out before May 22nd this year mm-hmm. for the screening, and um, and because th- this was sent to me, and it has the OWC logo on it, Otherworld Computing. Yes. Uh, how did that get on there? Uh, well, pretty much uh, as a producer, I was trying to find as many companies to you know help sponsor the film, so we could we didn't have to tap into that ten thousand dollars. Sure. sure. And I went to Grant um, to try to you know find a way to get hard drives. Um, that's the one thing about the right cameras when you shoot 4K. It I eats up it's, space. It, it's it's every minute is I believe a gigabyte. Yep. Um, and and we had over a terabyte and a half of raw footage, so we needed a lot of hard drives. Um, and uh, Glyph, another company in Ithaca, had to help sponsor, but we still needed more. So I went to Grant, and uh, he gave me a lot of words of wisdom. You know, uh, words of wisdom as far as you know personally what I should do as far as you know my website and stuff like this but also as far as like the equipment we used he um he uh he he pretty much let us have a uh, Voyager S2 which is um uh, eSATA dock which you know connecting to your uh, your laptop or your tower um all, it's just kind of interchangeable hard drives so like you know I, I use th- one myself <laughs> yeah, I think they're great um cuz i mean Internal hard drives are a t- heck of a ton cheaper than buying an external. And half the time, I mean, you know, I guess you could buy an external from a, a reputable company, but, you know, their, their drive inside there might be the same one you'd be buying, you know, yourself online. So, you know, it's, it's if you know what you're doing and you know that you could save yourself money, then why not do it? Yeah, um, and with the fact that, you know, these projects are getting so big, why buy so many, you know, bulky external hard drives when all you have to do is buy a three and a half inch internal? And then find some way to store it, and then you know have have a catalog and say, okay, I need to plug this project in and, and plop it in. So that it was definitely a, a nice um, piece of equipment that I'll definitely continue to use. You know, and, and the cool thing too is like, so if you have an old computer that dies, and you know you have a, some internal hard drives in there, you know you can just then use them as means of backing up random data or whatever it may be. Yep, absolutely. It puts your old stuff to good use. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing too about digital that I don't think is is. Um, highlighted enough and educated enough in school that I've kind of come to realize and have been lucky enough to not happen to me. But I hear so many horror stories of people losing their data because of you know corruption or um, uh, the, the hard drive fails or you know they forget to eject the disc and pull the plug and then it's all lost. And you know it's with film, it's it's a hard it's a it's a media that is um, in essence almost indestructible if you if you store it properly and you know keep it in in its optimum conditions. But with digital media, you know, these are spinning things that are going to eventually die. And, like, uh, I, that's where I think Blu-ray um, is definitely a, a means of the future in the sense that, you know, there's so much space there. And the fact that, you know, you have that flash card that you get all your, your image off of, the first thing you should do is transfer it and then make a hard disk copy of it. One that's not, you know, going to be used at all, but purely there for backup. Yep. And, I, and I don't think people do that enough. I mean... And and I, and I think it needs to be stressed more because if if, if it doesn't, you know, your hard drive could it's crash. Gone. So yep. Yeah, it's gone. Yep. Yeah. If you don't have a backup, you don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I try to tell people. If you don't, if you only have one copy on it, you're going to lose it. You got to have copies of copies. And uh, the Voyager is good for that. I I use it myself. I transfer hard drives between home and here in the studio all the time, as well as between OWC and and my studio, sending footage back and forth. 
because I do all their post-production video on the installation video stuff now. And uh, it, it, the Voyager just makes it a lot easier. Do you think sure. sponsorship is kind of the future when it comes to filmmakers? I mean, right now, the whole Hollywood scene, films cost $20, $30 million. The studio pretty much puts all the money in. The filmmakers really are beholden to them. But with the technology the way it is, it's really it's become more of a democracy. Um, sure. But it still costs money to do certain things. Do you think sure. sponsorship is a way that more filmmakers are going to turn? Definitely. Definitely. I think they need to. I mean, especially with today's economy, there's less money to be had. There's less grants and taxes you know, to, to get from the state. So you kind of have to be more of the independent filmmaker. And whether it's equipment or whether it's your food, you know, you, you're trying to get you know, pizza places or a catering place to help out, you know, the whatever you can save money on, you know, it's, it's to your advantage to do that because that money that you wouldn't have spent, you now can spend on other things, things that you can't get sponsored for are film festivals. You know, they cost a lot of money. And if you want to get your films out there, you're going to have to spend anywhere between 20 to 60 bucks, maybe a hundred dollars to get an entry into a film festival. And, and like, that's something you can't avoid, but you know, uh, equipment and 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 other and and props or food, whatever it may be. These are things that if you you may build some relationship with some kind of company that they'd they'd like to have that you know PR and that their name and something just so people their their you know their product can get become more become more aware of. So I, I feel sponsorship is definitely the way to do to go. It's just it's 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 funny because it's you know it's extremely difficult sometimes to get people to. To believe in you, one, or to just trust that it's it's worth their their time and investment to actually sponsor you. And you also do have to worry about it from a creative standpoint that you don't want that to really encroach on the storytelling itself. In other words, you don't sure. want Jack Bauer to stop running from the terrorists to go. I need a I need a diet coke really quick. Right. And and show right. the shot of him drinking the diet coke. Then he puts the can down and continues to run. Right. It, it right. doesn't work. Right. Um, does that worry you at all? Um, yes. I mean, I guess I would never necessarily see myself in a situation, especially like with, with a, like a Coke product or a product plate. <laughs> but um, uh, there's no, a mean, hard drive. We need to copy. I'll use my yeah. Voyager from <laughs> OWC. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I I, I I don't necessarily see that as a problem with myself as a filmmaker, but I can see how that could be a problem. You know, and on, on grander scales too. When it's it's you know you have a, a laundry list of things you can't say or you can't do because they're competitors' products or competitors' you know missions or whatever it may be. Is this film going to be uh, digitally distributed so people can watch it? Um, I need to talk more with Brian as far as you know how, how we'd like to have it be accessed. As of now, it'll just be available to our cast and crew, I guess, and family members, mm -hmm. and then any other person we're trying to you know. Um, impress or show it to because there's going to uh, be a lot of people listening to this podcast going oh i'd like to check it out well and then maybe maybe we should have it available. <laughs> um, if you do make an announcement on uh you know it being released to a, a broad public where can they go online to find out more information um i would say my website um would be one place to go uh right now the the knights of death metal does have a domain name or we're, we're still finishing the website and that's where the the uh the video would be for for available for download, and that would be the Knights of Death Metal .com. Okay, um, but my website is asifproductions.org. I guess that kind of also gives a bit more of a um, explanation of who I am as a filmmaker and what I you know try to pursue. I want to pursue as so as a filmmaker. I'm sorry, asif.org. As Alexander Sharkey Independent Films. Yes. Oh, I was thinking. Well, as if it's this address. <laughs> it kind of works both ways, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it's it's it has definitely a double entendre meaning. Absolutely, um, directors can use it as in the sense you know play this scene as if you're a tiger in a jungle trying to pounce on your prey. You know? <laughs> I gotta say, Alexander Sharkey is a great name for a filmmaker. Although it does kind of sound like a 1970s detective who is <laughs> driving a, a a Mustang or something in Philadelphia. Uh oh, it's Lieutenant Sharkey again. You know, <laughs> has that nice ring to it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely one that will stand out, and I think that will help you in uh, in your career going forward. Better than something like Tim Robertson, who you know, which means nothing. You've got a cool name. But I want to thank you a lot for coming on OWC Radio this week, talking to us. Um, it looks like a cool product. I I I really want to see the as a product film. I really want to see the film myself now because it sounds fun. So I, I hope you guys get it online. And if you do, send me a message and I'll uh, I'll pass it on to the podcast listeners out there. I definitely will. Thanks, Alexander. No worries, Tim. It was great talking to you. 